Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Jeff Goins, who is a professional writer. He is the author of four best-selling books, including The Art of Work, which was his last book. This was a USA Today, published as Weekly, and Washington Post national bestseller. Jeff talks about how to find your calling, and he explains his own experience of how he did so in sort of a roundabout way, which landed him on stage in Taiwan as a leading member of a Christian rock band. But now he's a writer, he's a successful writer, and his latest book is called Real Artists Don't Starve. This is due out in June, and he talks about how being a starving artist is actually a myth. Uh, you don't actually have to starve to be an artist, and why we don't make art to make money, we make money to make art. He's a really nice guy and very insightful, so I think you're going to enjoy the show. Let's get on to the episode. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining the show. We're very excited to have you on today. Perhaps for our audience out here in Asia, you could give us a little quick introduction. Who is Jeff Goins and what do you do for a living? Thanks for having me, Jay. I am a full-time writer and I spend most of my time writing books and teaching online courses for writers. Okay, so let's talk about how you became a writer because I think that being a writer is is not a not an easy thing to do and at some point everyone in their lives realizes they they want to do something and this actually segues pretty nicely into your last book that you wrote which i read uh called the art of work so maybe you can tell us a little bit about your journey uh, on how you became a writer Sure. So I became a writer, maybe not the way that people typically talk about this thing, uh, you know, where they're like, oh, you know, I, I've always wanted to do this. I've had a passion since I was a kid. And then finally, I just did it. I did not think of myself as a writer. For me, uh, writing was this thing that I did on the side, but never took seriously. If anything, I always wanted to be like a rock star. Uh, before we started recording, you asked me if I'd ever been to Asia and I spent a month in Taiwan traveling with my band, playing at these schools and, and, and out in public and at malls and stuff. And for a very brief season in my life, I kind of felt like a rock star uh, wow. because in, in Taiwan, they're like, oh, you're, you're an American musician. And they just assumed <laughs> we were like a really cool, famous rock band. And I remember one time playing at this all-girls nursing school. Uh, just outside of Taipei, <laughs> and like, like, have you ever seen the videos of when the Beatles play the Ed Sullivan Show and these girls are like fainting? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was that. That was, that was you. That, that, <laughs> that's what happened at this all-girls school. I, we're playing, and you've got these like 
16 year old, you know, nursing students. And like, literally they were fainting in the crowd. It was, it was crazy. It was unbelievable. And it was great for my ego for like 12 seconds. Uh, (laughs) And we finished the show and keep in mind, like, you know, we would play like uh, in, in America, we'd play high schools and, and we'd have like, you know, teenagers with their arms crossed and their eyes rolled and they just didn't think we were cool at all. Right. We'd been doing this for a year. And so when we went to Taiwan and we felt like a big deal, we we're like, oh, this is awesome. But at the end of the show, they rushed the stage and we had to run, <laughs> run out the back like Elvis Presley style. It was amazing. And then the next day we're walking around the city and we walk past these girls wearing these school uniforms and they kind of look at us and we look at them and then we keep walking and then we look back and they looked at us and, and they like blushed and like pointed and, you know, started waving their hands and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, they recognize us. They recognize you. <laughs> that is, that's such a cool story. I know, I've never heard that story before. What, what, what was the name of your band and what, did, what, what musical instrument did you play? Were you a guitarist? Or? Uh, I, I was a guitarist and I was the leader of the band and we, we were a Christian band, and so our name was CTI fourteen twenty one, and CTI stood for Carpenters Tools International. So it was not a famous, super successful thing, but for like I said, for like twelve seconds, I felt felt like a rock star. And um, so That's all so that cool. to <laughs> that to say, I didn't always want to be a writer, uh, and and after at the <laughs> end of. I did this after college, and at the end of my year of touring, I realized that music wasn't as big a deal to me as I thought it would be. Like, basically, I chased my dream. I wanted to be a musician. I became a professional musician, and it was sort of underwhelming. And I remember having a conversation with a friend, and he said, man, if I couldn't play music, I don't know what I would do. And I remember thinking when he said that, well, I would just do something else. And so I realized in that moment that, you know, this wasn't my passion. This wasn't my calling. This wasn't the thing that I was supposed to be doing. And so I, you know, I, I finished up with, with that and um, I was committed to the band for a year and then I moved on. Now, was it a, was there, was there a financial aspect, a financial constraint element as well that was kind of a push factor there? <laughs> Uh, I mean, we didn't make much money, but I wasn't really, I've actually never really been that interested in, in making money. I just never wanted to be broke. And so, uh, I, I left that, I moved to Nashville to chase a girl. I slept on a friend's couch for seven months and took a couple of part-time jobs and, and, you know, barely got by, but I survived. Um, and I chased, you know, I pursued this woman who became my wife. Nice. Then I worked for I worked for a call center. Then I worked for a nonprofit. And about seven years into working for this international nonprofit, I realized what I really want to do is I want to be writing. And at the time, I was blogging. I was a marketing director, so I'd learned a lot about social media. And I realized all this stuff that I'm doing for our organization, brand building, copywriting, you know, Facebook was starting to become a thing. Twitter had just started. Like I could be doing it for myself. And I was really interested in writing. And I'd, writing was not something that I wasn't doing. It was just something that I'd never taken seriously. So I didn't have an English major in, in college, but I, I was a writing tutor in college because it was a way that I could make some extra money. And I'd always been good at this. I just never thought I could be a writer because everybody tells you that writers don't make any money. Right. So 
Well, thanks for that that story, that backstory. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that with the audience, especially the part about being a, a, a rock star in Taiwan. Yes. I think that's really cool. Um, so it sounds like you have you've you've always sort of had a strong creative yes. desire, um, and and that was expressed early on in in music, and and then you realized along the way that you know writing was something that that you do appreciate and that you do enjoy work, uh, doing on a consistent basis. So you talk about this notion in the art of work that finding your calling or life's work or, or life's purpose is, let's see how you put it, and, and, and you'll be able to, to, to clear this up uh, much better than I'll, I'll be able to, but you, you, you talk about how you have to be listening, first of all, in order to find that. Yeah. And that a lot of, a lot of that is... Um, a sort of a mentality that it's it's a journey and it's not just a, okay, I need to find it and then I'm done, right? It's this idea of listening to your life. And, and the quote is from a guy named Parker Palmer. Um, and he says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And so what this means is you have to listen to the voices beyond uh, those of your parents or teachers or employers or friends. And you have to listen to your inner voice, your intuition, uh, you know, wherever you think that comes from, you've got to start asking the question, not just what can I do, but who am I really? When I was in Taiwan, one of the things that was interesting about Asian culture, especially that was a little bit different from you know Western culture, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is, is just the importance of family and the expectation of parents uh, on, on you know their children to succeed and to honor the family. And I remember playing a show at a college, at a university uh, in Taipei, and we met with all of these students, and they were talking about, you know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm studying to be a doctor. What are you doing? I'm studying, you know, to uh, be a lawyer. Uh, and and then when we would ask them, well, is that what you want to do? No, this is what my parents want me to do. And there was this really, it was very interesting. It was, wasn't always true, but it was true for a lot of the students. There was this angst between here is the thing that I have been told that I am, and then here's the thing that I personally feel that I am. And, and I think yes. we all have to, and I think in different cultures, you know, that angst can be, you know, more or less, but we all have this, this angst, this tension between who we really are and who everybody says we should be. And listening to your life is the first step in finding your purpose, uh, living a life uh, of meaning not just doing work that makes you successful, uh, but doing work that makes you happy, doing work that uh, you feel actually matters. That you hit the nail on the head, Jeff, when when you said that, because this actually is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is because exactly what you said, there's so many people in Asian culture that feel this mold that they're supposed to, to, to fill coming from society or their their parents and it's just not necessarily what they want to do but they've never been allowed freedom to explore beyond that and so for for people that are in this in this rut so to speak how do you begin to listen how, what what are the first few steps you should do if let's say I'm listening to this right now and I just heard you Jeff and and what you said 
just resonated with me so loudly. And I'm like, I'm stuck in my job because my parents told me that they want me to be an engineer, but I really want to do something else, but I'm not sure what to do. Give me, give me the actionable steps I can do right now to start listening. Yes. Uh, so you, it's not just a question of what do I want to do? I think that's a good start, but that's not enough. And so, uh, in Western culture, especially in America, it's sort of the opposite. It's, 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 here's what I want to do. And it's right. This is what I'm passionate about. And so I'm just going to go do it, you know, and it's very individualistic. And I think there's some really good things about honoring your family, finding a way to serve society, but you cannot sacrifice personal passion uh, for, for the needs of others because you ultimately won't be happy. And you, and if you're not happy doing what you're doing, uh, you're probably not going to serve others very well. We all experience products and services that come from people who are really enjoying what they do versus people who are doing it you know, somewhat bitterly. And and you can tell the difference. Right. You can tell the difference when you go to the grocery store uh, and, and you're checking out and the person doesn't want to be there. You can feel that. So yes. what do you do? I think you ask yourself three questions and you could even like pull out a paper right now and write this down. I, I often walk people through this exercise. So first question is a question of passion. What do I love? So like draw a little circle, write the word passion in there and underneath you can write what do I love? And that's an important question to ask. What do I love doing? What What do I have an affinity for? What have I always enjoyed? Uh, as you already noted, Jay, I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I've always been creative. That was just something that was always true about me. I always loved art. I like music. I've always liked writing and reading. I've always had an affinity for the creative arts. So I, you know, I would have written creativity or art in there. Right. What do I love? That's the first question. Now the next question is what am I good at? So draw another circle and you're going to create a Venn diagram. So you're going to have mm -hmm. uh, the second circle intersect the first circle, you know, kind of in the middle between the two. And, and this is a question of skill. What am I good at? What are the things that uh, have come maybe more naturally to me than they, they have for other people? Maybe you're good at math. Maybe you are, you know, physically gifted and, and you've always been good at sports uh, maybe you're just really good at solving problems or or got a great intuition, whatever that is. And you can make a list of several things, but you want to make a list of skills. For me, writing was something that was that always came pretty easily. Performance, speaking, creating things out of nothing. These are all things that I didn't really have to try very hard at, and I was always better than most people at them. So skill, right. you can make a list of your skills. That's the second question. The third question is is the most important question, and it is, depending on the culture, you know, maybe the place where we start and stop. And it's not enough in and of itself, but when you get the intersection of all three of these, you've got something really good. And this is the question, what do people want from me? And it is a question of demand. So it's not what do people expect of you. It's, it's people going to you, Jay, and going, hey, I need help with blank. You're really good at giving business advice or, you know, you read so many books that every time I have a problem, you've got a solution. Or, hey, like, I, I have a sweater and, and, and it's got a hole in it. You're really good at knitting. Can you help me with this? These are the things right. that people are coming to you and, and asking for help with. Maybe you're good at computers. You know, maybe you're a great cook, whatever it might be. Uh, it's not just skill because there are things that we're good at that nobody knows about. And there are things that we like that we're not good at. And, and maybe nobody has any idea that we can, that, that we like them. Uh, but when you find something that you, that you love, that you're skilled at, 
and that other people want from you, you've got a short list. It may, may not be one thing, but it's a handful of things that you can begin to explore and go, hey, is this is this my calling? Is this where I should be dedicating my life's work to? It is not it is not the end of this journey of going, oh, I filled in the three circles and this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, but right. it is a good way of beginning to narrow down all these different things that you're doing. Because typically, Jay, the thing that we say is like, well, you know, do what you're good at or um, do what you're passionate about or whatever. And I think it's really a question of finding something that you're good at, that you love doing, that meets the needs of others in some way. That's great. Thank you for that. That That's a, that's a great little exercise. And uh, I think that, you know, finding what you love to do, drawing that circle out, and then the second circle, I often tell people to actually ask ask your friends and people other than your mom and your spouse that will probably tell you, well, depending <laughs> on, on how they react normally, but that will tell you that you're, you know, the, the best, brightest person in the world or whatever. Right. But, uh, yeah. you know, maybe maybe someone on the second tier social circle or someone that doesn't know you as well, but still is comfortable enough to give you honest feedback. And that kind of helps people cut through their any distortions that they have when they view themselves. And then lastly, um, I like how you intersect that with, you know, what do people want from you? And that that also, you know, some some people could, you know, are are, are there and they're like, well, no one asked me for anything because I'm not good at anything, right? So I think that might take a little bit of maybe introspection and and oftentimes the way people ask that question of you is not very explicit. It could be uh, indirect, right? So uh, that's a very good exercise. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. Um, so now let's say you found something and and it's uh let's say it's knitting sweaters <laughs> and everyone comes to you because you are the the chief you know, best knit, sweater knitter fixer upper out there yep. and so you found your your calling your passion so to speak and then you realize that when someone comes to you to to fix your sweater you can only make you know, a couple of dollars and, and you're not sure how to, how to make a living off of that. So now comes this whole concept of the starving artist. Okay. So maybe knitting sweater might not be an art, but maybe you, you might see it as an art. So the starving artist, you wrote a book, your, la your most recent book called Real Artists Don't Starve. I'm excited. I've pre-ordered on Amazon, oh, thanks. which is out this summer. Is that right? Yeah, that's maybe right. you can talk a little bit about your book and why you wrote that. Sure. So Real Artists Don't Starve is is sort of the next step in that this process. Once you figure out what you want to do with your life, what you know, what your calling is, how do you turn it into a career? How do you actually make money off of it? And I'm not like I said, I, I've never cared much about the acquisition of money just for the sake of having things or having money. But money has always been a means to an end for me, which it allows you to uh, do more things. Uh, and, and most importantly, it allows you to do the work. It allows you to keep doing the work. So if you're a sweater knitter and you're not getting paid to knit sweaters, um, then you can only knit so many sweaters before you run out of money, right? Right. So, you know, what do we do with that? Well, I think the first thing I have to do, and I, I live in Nashville where you've got a bunch of uh, musicians and artists and authors, and I am surrounded by this mentality. I call it the starving artist mindset. It's just this 
um, idea that you have to starve and suffer for your work, and somehow the work is is therefore more serious because you're suffering for it. You see this with entrepreneurs a lot as well. You know, you see kind of the, the you read the story of you know uh, somebody st- starting a company in their garage and taking out multiple loans and you know right basically you know risking utter bankruptcy and then one day it all just comes together and they get their big break and and they win big you know and they go public right. or whatever and for every one of those stories there's like a million stories of people that just failed <laughs> and, right. and i think yes. that's actually not a wise way to build a business for most people and it's certainly not a wise way to pursue your calling and, and so I, I use that term art pretty loosely i think I think entrepreneurs are artists. I think writers are artists. I think engineers are artists. And yes. and if we think about what we do as art, I think that's great. I mean, we've been talking, you know, there's a lot of conversation, especially in the business community these days about the importance of creativity, but we can also sort of like bring that starving artist mindset into our work. And an example of that would be you know, the the baker who, you know, gets up every day before the sun rises and bakes his bread and spends all day, you know, selling bread just to kind of make ends meet and break even. And, and he's just one bad decision away from, you know, the whole bakery going under because he's got this mindset that he's got to stay at this certain level and he hasn't given himself permission to profit and flourish. And I think I think artists of all types need to give themselves permission to value the work that they do and, and take it more seriously uh, so that they don't starve and they can keep creating this important work and, and we can keep seeing it. Uh, my dad ran a restaurant for years and was in, you know, really struggled through that. And ultimately, I mean, it was a great restaurant. It was serving this, you know, small local community. People loved it, but it just, you know, from a business standpoint, it just didn't work very well. And he had to close it up. I mean, basically had to sell it for the cost of the equipment. And you see this happen a lot in the entrepreneurial community. And it breaks my heart that artists uh, of all types, people who have important, interesting work to share with the world, um, cannot figure out the business side of things uh, so that they can not be a starving artist, but become a thriving artist. Right. So this is interesting because... So first of all, you're you're bringing to light this whole notion of the starving artist, and and you're right, Jeff. You know, it's it's like the hero's journey. It, it, it's a, it makes for a perfect movie when, especially in entrepreneurship, when you hear the guy who's like you said, levered up three, four loans, remortgaged their house, right. and just doing everything that they can, pouring their, you know, and they're on the brink of failure, and then boom, they make it, right? So everyone loves that story and loves hearing that story. And so first of all, your book is, it sounds like it's just acknowledging that, kind of explaining that this is out there. And then you you say that you're, you talk about how you don't have to starve an artist. So, so how, what are some ways that, that artists who think that they must starve until they make it big, what are some ways that they can thrive as an artist? Yeah, great question. So in the book, I've got these these 12 rules for how to make it as a, as a thriving artist. And if you follow these rules, you know, it's like eating your vegetables. Like 
if you eat 11 out of 12 of them, like, are you going to be pretty healthy? Sure. You know, like the idea is the more of these you do, the more likely um, your success is going to be. So a, a few things that I think are, are really important that a lot of people overlook is, uh, first of all, charge what you're worth. That's an important rule, like actually charge money for your work. I remember working in a restaurant one time and I, I watched the owner's daughter give away uh, drinks to all of her friends because, you know, thought it, it made her look cool. And well, like I, I, I said, I said to her, I said, hey, like, you know, this costs your dad money. <laughs> like, right. like he, do, he doesn't get these for free, you know? <laughs> And so you're you're robbing him. And but I, you know, so I mean, that's an obvious example. But I see, uh, I see creatives do this a lot. Writers working for free, artists working for free, and and I'm not above like trying to find ways to get your your work in front of people. But we need to not make a habit of giving away uh, all of our work. Uh, and you even see this with startups that they give everything away for free, and then they go, hey, we're going to charge for some of this work because we're running out of capital, and it rarely works. It's, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing. Typically you have to create something else at a premium. I remember reading about Evernote and how, you know, they had all this capital and they had this huge, uh, community and they were losing money every year because they were, right. I mean, just cost yep. so much money and they had to create the premium membership to, you know, make it work. So you got to charge what you're worth. Uh, another thing that I think is really important that we tend to overlook is apprentice under a master. This is something that isn't like a, you know, a like business advice, uh, but is, you know, good life advice. I think, especially now, like entrepreneur is a word that everybody throws around. I met somebody the other day who was a 21 year old entrepreneur. And I was like, what yeah. does that mean? They're like, well, I have like a side business. I was like, you know, I, I mean, I'm not above like somebody being a 21 year old entrepreneur, but like you having a side freelance, you know, web design business, I don't think makes you an entrepreneur. Like an entrepreneur yeah, is somebody who, like the word means undertaker. Like it means somebody who undertakes a huge task, takes on risk, uh, right. attempts to do something that hasn't been done before, typically is working with contractors and employees and is trying to bring something into the world that has never existed before. So like if you're just like a freelance web designer, I'm not quite sure you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's it's this, it's this, it's this idea that like everybody's a master all of a sudden. Everybody can just be whatever they want. You can be an entrepreneur. It's sure. no big deal. You can be a, a thought leader. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's another good one. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to apprentice before you get to be a master. And one of the things that I observed, uh, I read over a hundred books of um, history's greatest artists, entrepreneurs, and creative minds. And uh, almost all of them without fail had some season of formal or informal apprenticeship, meaning they went and did uh, boring, tedious work for somebody else and use that experience to become great at something. And apprenticeship didn't last, a, it wasn't like an internship. It didn't last a season. It wasn't like a summer job, yeah. you know, at the high rise in the city where you get everybody donuts in the morning. Um, it was seven to 10 years uh, of doing work basically in exchange for room and board. And hopefully by the end of that time, you, you knew what you were doing. And I think we should take the same approach to our art, whatever it is, and, and certainly take the same approach to business. 
yeah, I, I'm sort of tired of seeing people become thought leaders and they start an online business and they want people to pay them for their expertise, but they haven't spent a decade of acquiring experience and expertise to have the right to teach anybody else how to do those things. That's so funny that you say that. I, I'm, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I, I think it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Out. I mean, there's, there's, it, it's like exactly what you say. You, 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 you throw up a landing page and <laughs> all of a sudden you can change your LinkedIn profile to say entrepreneur. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but I think I, I, I love how you, how you bring back the, the historical reference of what a true sort of apprenticeship is and how that is really the only way to to becoming a master is is putting in the time being patient putting in the hard work uh and learning you know that your true craft and only then will you actually you know produce something of quality where 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 i think people will pay you for right so um so that's that's these are all great great insights that uh i'm just getting from 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 hearing you speak so jeff when can we expect the book to be on the shelves yeah great question um it comes out june 6 and um i'm looking forward to sharing it with the world very excited about that. We will have the link up in the show notes. Just the last uh, few couple questions for you, Jeff. Um, I know that you found your your life's work or task, which is to be a writer. How would you want people to remember you as? I'm taking a page from uh, from Mike Michael Hyatt's uh, Living Forward book, where yeah. which I found to be you know very very uh, you know influential. Uh, yeah. Just the That's way great. that he reframed. Uh, the way you look at yourself. So how would you want to be remembered? It's a, it's a good question. I, I struggled to answer this, uh, but somebody the other day told me, oh, Jeff, I'm so, so looking forward to this book. Everything you do is so thoughtful. And I thought, that's a, like, that's a really great compliment. I think I want to be remembered as somebody who did thoughtful and interesting work. I aspire to write books and spread ideas that change culture in some small or big way. And so, uh, you know, I, I hope people remember me as somebody who didn't just say what everybody else was saying, but said something thoughtful and thought provoking and hopefully changed the way they thought about the world and the work that we do and, and why it really matters. That's awesome. I'm certain that they will. Although I will remember you as the Taiwanese <laughs> rock star. As you <laughs> the head painting <laughs> on stage. That's awesome. Man, Jeff, it was very great having you on. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, last question is where can people find you, follow you, and connect with you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you can find me at goinswriter.com, G O I N S writer.com. And uh, Jay, you reached out to me and said something really nice. You talked about the uh, Beginner's Guide to Building an Audience, which is a free uh, ebook that we we give away um, on on my website. And if you go to goinswriter.com uh, today, you can you can get that for free. Great, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, thanks again for your time, Jeff. Really appreciate it, and good luck with the book launch. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y. 
K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.